Hello, and welcome back to Bottomless Coffee Podcast. My name is Jerome. You can find me on social media at at Jerome T. Evans. And if you haven't been following this series, then buckle up. We are continuing our work to become a trauma-informed podcast by reading and working through the book, What Happened to You? Conversations on Trauma, Resilience, and Healing by Oprah Winfrey and Dr. Bruce Perry. You can find the first episodes of this series of this work that we're all doing together at bottomlesscoffeeshow.com. Okay, we have made it to chapter two, and the topic is seeking balance. So right off the bat, you know that we'll be talking about how we feel, whether our bodies are in regulated or dysregulated states, why they're in that state, and how we can go from dysregulation to balance. We should also expect to revisit Dr. Perry's model of the brain. Recall that upside down triangle with the brainstem at the bottom, then the deencephalon, the limbic system, and the cortex. If you're not able to follow that, then I really do encourage you to back up an episode and work through that model and those terms with us so that we're all on the same page. But okay, I've already warned you about that, so let's dive into what happened to you, chapter two, Seeking Balance. Oprah begins this chapter with a story. She's, uh, you know, a pretty good storyteller. This time, she reminds us of her childhood abuse, reminds her that it went on for a long, long time, and then talks about the impact of long-term stress on the body. And there certainly is a link between long-term stress and depression, anxiety, stroke, and diabetes. Oprah adapted to her abuse by becoming a people pleaser. She'd give and give and give until she didn't have any more of herself for herself. And to silence the stress indicators that her body was sending, the signals from her body that were telling her that she was doing way too much, Oprah turned to food. Now, it took a while, but Oprah eventually figured out how to take care of herself, how to balance the demands of her work with her personal health. She established healthy boundaries. She takes walks in nature. She sometimes might put on some good music and dance around the house. She does what she needs to take care of herself. After Oprah shares her story, the chapter moves on into a conversation between Oprah and Dr. Perry. They talk about the process of giving until you need to pull back and take care of yourself as finding your rhythm. And I think most people can agree that rhythm can be a powerful thing. For me, there's probably no rhythm that I love more than the push and pull of the ocean. Sitting on the shore with my feet in the sand as the water tries to pull me in and push me away and the waves crash and the wind hums, it's it's instantly mesmerizing for me. And no matter how annoyed I am, and I am a control freak, so I'm always a little annoyed at something, I'm always at a calm, centered, peaceful place when I'm at the beach. And I find rhythm in the morning as well. I'm always the first one to wake up in this house, but sometimes instead of hopping out of bed and 
getting on with the day, I just stay there. And I listen to the rhythm of my husband's breath as he's sleeping. And it's peaceful and beautiful. Rhythm can be soothing and regulating. It can calm you down when you're experiencing anxiety or panic, or lift your spirits when your mood is down. Wherever your center is, the right rhythm can help you get back there despite your current mood. But why is that? Well, we are going back to the womb on this one. Dr. Perry posits, and I tend to agree with him here, that our first exposure to rhythm occurred in the womb with the heartbeat of our parent. The gentle swaddling of the womb, the vibrations that we experienced as our parent took long walks, laughed at funny jokes, and our parents' constant heartbeat during their pregnancy influenced us from the earliest, most formative moments. And that rhythm continued after our birth. Human babies are straight up helpless. We all depended on caregivers for literally everything, which means that in our earliest moments of dysregulation, we had someone there to help us. Think about it. When you were a baby and you got hungry, there was nothing you could do but cry about it. And when you were cold, cry. Hot, cry. Stomachache, cry. There was, there was no problem that you experienced that you couldn't cry about. But importantly, then someone came to help you. They rocked you as they tried to figure out what you needed so that they could, you know, get back to bed. Crying for your caregiver is how you signaled dysregulation. And when they held you, you knew that eventually whatever was bothering you would be dealt with and you'd feel better and be back to being regulated. Now, recall at this time that you are still developing. Your brain in particular is taking in information all the time and working to create the rules that your body will likely live with for your entire life. But our society does not provide a lot of support for our caregivers. So even though we all know that taking care of extremely young children is vitally important, most people still have to go to work shortly after giving birth. In the United States, at least as of the time of this recording, I think there's still a push to give federal employees 12 weeks of child leave, it's three months. Uh, most people have to work way in advance of that to support the physical needs of their children, their food, water, shelter. So, you know, most people aren't always there right on hand to take care of their immediate cries for help. Which means that our little kids are already kind of starting behind their most ideal place. Because, you know, you're expected to fire a baby out of there and get back to the assembly line or the desk or the retail counter, what have you. So they're not getting that consistent care from one attentive person over their entire development. Instead, they're being cared for by someone else while you go to work. And no joke, I get dysregulated dealing with my jobs. You know, I got a couple of jobs. I work hard, and at the end of the day, I am pooped. 
just thinking about having to take care of another human being after doing all of the work that I already do is wearing me out. And my jobs, even put together, aren't as difficult as most people's single nine to fives. So I can't imagine the stress and exhaustion that someone must feel when they work all day and then they have to go home to be a caregiver. But that's the traditional American way of bringing up children. So, you know, that's like par. It's not great, but it's us, literally us. And we are okay. We're okay. But this book is about trauma. So what happens when things aren't great in the home, when things aren't okay? Let's say that there's persistent verbal abuse, physical abuse, or even just consistent neglect. What's the impact on our developing minds then? Well, according to Dr. Perry, when children aren't regulated properly at the youngest age, their stress response systems will be activated for too long and that system will become sensitized. So ordinarily, when we've been taken care of by someone or someone's consistently, then we get a little stressed, we cry, and our caregiver comes over, figures out what's wrong, and we're back to being regulated. That works fine. But if we're left to cry for too long, like way, way, way too long, child neglect territory too long, the systems that work to regulate our body develop to expect those long-term periods of stress. And, you know, why wouldn't they? That, at that point, stress is all those systems know. And that can manifest as problems as these children eventually grow up and are put into systems that are designed for children that did not experience neglect or abuse as their brains were developing. The first example that Dr. Perry uses is of a child that grows up in a home where physical violence takes place. That child will grow up being on the lookout for violence. They will be hardwired to look for it. So when they go in the classroom, the teacher may call them distracted or unfocused or uh, think they have something like ADHD. Now let's think about this for a moment. There is violence in the home. So the kid has to be on the lookout. But the same biological system that rewards them with a little peace at home, a little lack of violence, if you will, that causes problems at school. So that kid is now in a lose-lose situation. This example made me think of Gadar. You know, that gay superpower that specifically gay guys seem to have uh, to identify other gay guys. It made me wonder if a part of our brain developed that way to stay on the lookout for who would be an ally, who would be safe to talk to and associate with. It, all, it also made me think about the way that women have to make quick judgments about men when women are out alone at night. Who is this guy? Is he safe? 
The second example of a manifestation of neglect that Dr. Perry uses in the book has to do with our ability to form relationships. He finds that children who have been neglected by their caregivers adopt the worldview that they don't matter. He specifically cites an example of a child whose only caregiver is a chronically depressed mother. The child had no reference for warmth and appropriate affirming physical affection, so she was exceedingly shy and quiet in school. In Dr. Perry's example, this shyness was so extreme that eventually the child was overlooked by the teacher because relationships are a two-way street. And when you don't give energy into a relationship, it does wither. The little girl in Dr. Perry's story had no experience with that receiving and reciprocating affection. And so the relationship with her teacher suffered to the point that there was really no relationship at all and she was ignored. The key here and to everything that we've been talking about in this episode is the extremely long-term exposure to stress that leads to developments in the brain that are maladaptive to our existing systems. Can you think of any long periods of stress that you've endured? How did that change your behavior? And are those changes still working for you? Let's sip on that for a moment. Let's let it percolate. And then we'll be right back after this coffee break. Welcome back, everyone. I am still Jerome Evans at Jerome T. Evans on social media and on the internet at bottomlesscoffeeshow.com. We are talking about trauma and balance and finding our rhythm. We've talked a bit about being regulated versus being dysregulated. And as I'm thinking about those terms, I'm seeing them more as catch-alls for our moods. So if I'm hungry and can't find food, then I'm dysregulated. If I'm hungover, which doesn't happen as often as it used to, I'm dysregulated. And if something is wrong and I don't have the words for it, then I can also describe myself as dysregulated. And it's the same with being regulated. How are you? I'm good. Are you sure? Yep, I'm regulated. And also, I think there's room for nuance here. So someone asked me, how are you? And I'm like, well, I'm 90% good. I'm 5% worried about getting out the next podcast episode on time and uh, 4% bothered by the news and like 1% kind of wonky for no reason. Then I could say, you know, I'm 99% regulated without having to go into everything that I'm feeling. Now, in What Happened to You, Chapter 2, we're talking about finding the rhythm that keeps us regulated. And that rhythm can differ depending on your personal development. And your development, in large part, was dictated by the pattern of stress that you received as a child and still further into your development as an adult. As described in the book, there are two patterns of stress that we're concerned about in childhood development. There's the pattern of stress that leads to sensitization 
an overreaction to our systems, and the pattern that leads to tolerance and resilience. Prolonged exposure to extreme and unpredictable stress can lead us to developing overly reactive stress response systems. This is compared to what we expect to see when the stress that we're exposed to is predictable, moderate, and controllable. So listen, unexpected stress at a very high level every now and then isn't going to affect your long-term development. But if your environment is unpredictable from one day to the next over years and your brain is still developing, then you may develop stress response systems that take more effort to regulate. And here is where Dr. Perry gets into our body's tactics for regulation. So an injury is a dis dysregulation, right? Uh, a hurt that your body knows to avoid. I'm hurt, ow, help, I'm dysregulated. In order to avoid injury, you'll typically activate your flight or fight response, or fight or flight response. Activating that response means that you'll get hyper-focused on the threat. Your cortex shuts down so you lose your sense of time. Your heart, it gets pumping. But what if you can't fight or run away? Well then, your body gets ready to take the hit. Your body will actually release an opioid painkiller to dull the pain. And maybe your brain will try to get your consciousness away from the pain for a moment by forcing you into an out-of-body experience. That's called dissociation. Now kids with imaginary worlds and friends are extra good at dissociating. But obviously if their imagination gets in the way of operating in our existing systems like school, then there will be problems. But let's shift to adults for a bit because for part of this second chapter of what happened to you, Oprah and Dr. Perry discuss drug and alcohol use in a way that harkens back to Jonathan Thomas's ketamine joke. Some people had perfectly regulated childhoods babyhoods, let's say, but maybe found that at around puberty that they're a member of the LGBTQIA community. In some places, that creates prolonged stress on the child after the period in which a baby might have learned to power dissociate. So we're not talking about a baby that can power dissociate anymore. We're talking about a teenager who no longer has the benefit of all that time in the crib to learn how to power dissociate. So what happens to them? Well, they just continue to experience that stress and to look for a way to find relief from that stress. A lot of the time, and again, going back to that ketamine joke, a lot of the times when that person is introduced to drugs or alcohol, they may experience the pleasure of relief from that stress. And that reward, that release of stress is incredibly, incredibly powerful. And people will keep coming back to it for so long as they don't have another way 
of relieving that stress. So when Oprah introduced the chapter, she talked about people pleasing and eating. There is nothing wrong with eating when you're healthy. There's also nothing wrong with drinking when you can control it. But when eating is your only way of feeling regulated, or when drinking alcohol is your only way of feeling regulated, it's a problem. Oprah was able to pivot from apparently a lot of eating to taking walks, dancing, and setting healthy boundaries for herself. And a lot of people in the LGBTQ community could similarly, probably, diversify the way that they experience relief from that constant stress that our community experiences. The model that Dr. Perry uses to talk about this is that of the reward bucket. And this time the model is very simple, so don't worry, we will not be manipulating triangles or anything right now. Just picture a simple two-dimensional bucket. Now, about three-fourths of the way up, mark a line. In order for you to feel regulated, you have to fill up your reward bucket all the way up past that line with the things that regulate you. For some people, that may be drugs, alcohol, sweet, salty, processed foods, all that stuff that we know is bad for us. Literally, if you've ever heard someone talk about uh, how they need something that's bad for them, but they're doing it anyway, like they know it's bad, but they've got to have it, you know, that something is probably filling their reward bucket. But the key here is that they're filling their bucket with unhealthy things in order to feel regulated. Over time and with intention, they could probably find other things that give them the same reward. But it's work. And you know, some people are perfectly functional and happy as they are. And also, it can be really difficult to see that your life could be better when all you've really known is that dysregulation and relief. That one rhythm. But I want to really impress upon you this important point. Because feeling regulated and actually thriving are two different things. According to Oprah and Dr. Perry, you want to fill up your bucket with relationships, with friends, with family and community, healthy activities like yoga or reading or meditation, and healthy physical and emotional in intimacy. Those things that help you thrive and giving less of your energy and resources to things that may make you feel regulated but don't actually help you thrive is part of healing from past trauma. So then, how do you fill your bucket? And do those things help you to lead a fulfilled life and a thriving life? Do those things help you to heal? 
think on that over this coffee break. And we'll be right back. So, buckets and the things that we fill them with. You are still with Jerome Evans at Jerome T. Evans on social media. This is Bottomless Coffee Podcast, and you can find more episodes at bottomlesscoffeeshow.com. We've been talking about chapter two of What Happened to You, the chapter called Seeking Balance. And specifically, we've been talking about the distinction between regulation and dysregulation, and between being regulated and thriving. And at this stage in my life, I do feel like I'm thriving. I've replaced some of the unhealthy behaviors that, quote, filled my bucket, end quote, uh, but didn't help me thrive with behaviors that fulfill me as well as regulate me. My mornings are spent in a type of meditation as I work through this book, What Happened to You, and attempt to relay its lessons to you all through this podcast. I am intentional about having time for myself because I know that helps me prepare what's coming out the day and the week and the month. I'm also pretty good about monitoring my nutrition and my physical health. I exercise a few times a week. My workouts are generally short, but they get me out of the house, and I try new exercises every few weeks to keep things fresh at the gym. My husband likes a lot of things that taste good but maybe aren't great for you, so... As weird as it sounds, I occasionally have to sneak in a few healthy meals to keep my bucket filled. My dog is a source of constant companionship. He's a good boy that I train, play with, and create structures around so that he experiences a life with very little suffering. And of course, my husband is a fulfilled, thriving man as well. He has a job that thrills him, so every day he comes home in a bubbly mood and we talk through the day's successes and future plans. But I'm not going to lie to you and say that I've always been thriving and attuned to peace or whatever. In previous years, I would call them my 20s, but maybe it went a little bit farther than that, uh, I was... I was definitely more of an agent of chaos. There were many, many, many good times, but very memorable moments of anger, which, listen, sometimes I got pissed off, okay? And for a long time, I thought that it was perfectly normal to kind of wear the threat of anger almost as an accessory. Don't piss me off, well. You know, I'll be very unpredictable. Anger was my go-to emotion. It was empowering. And it was a source of energy that I could leverage to get some really impressive things done. But why anger? Some people are sad or disappointed and can just move on when something bad happens. So why was my go-to emotion always rage? Figuring that out has been the work of a few weeks. For several mornings, my brain didn't want to explore the question. I could tell because I was very unproductive, easily distracted, 
willing to do anything other than to explore why I'd relied on anger for so long. And, you know, there's nothing really wrong with anger. Anger can be an appropriate response to a circumstance. But if I'm always getting angry, then according to the lessons of this book, what happened to you, that's probably a sign that way, way, way back, being angry at something brought something else, something about me, into regulation. Maybe it brought food or water or got people to listen. Whatever it was that I needed, anger must have brought it to me. So then I asked myself, what is your earliest memory of being angry? And oh, there are times when you hear people talk about doing the work. Maybe that's the work that makes the world better or the work that makes you feel like you're a better person or actually just makes you a better person. I can say confidently that reviewing your past, examining the way you lived, and then really zeroing in on what happened to you is one example of doing the work. So for me, with anger, my first memory of it is when I hit my brother and my mother rewarded me for it. Now, I was a child, so I have forgiven myself for this and my brother and I are on good terms, but I remember that something happened and I became enraged. The type of anger when you can no longer feel your connection to yourself. I wasn't like a child Jerome that was angry. I was anger, like manifest in a child. I was so angry that my cortex had to have shut down because I don't remember what I was angry about. I'm not even kidding. It was like a switch flipped. Then suddenly my brother had been punched in the stomach by me. And, you know, I was a child. And so I did what children do. And I went to my mom. And she rewarded me. She told me that I'd done the right thing. She said that my brother had been manipulating me to do things for him for years, he'd say. Jerome will do anything for me, watch. And then he'd make a mess and ask me to clean it up or something. You know, childish, childish stuff like that. And he wasn't wrong. I love my brother and would still do anything for him. And he certainly did not deserve violence for whatever he was doing. That was not the right answer. But that was the lesson that I was taught. When something bad happens, lose yourself to anger and then be rewarded when it's over. The good news, of course, is that I was able to identify my anger as a problem and to replace it as a maladaptive reaction like years ago. Now when something bad happens that would trigger my anger, I first look to see if anger is an appropriate, helpful response. If it isn't, then I'll take a walk, dissect the circumstance, and work to ensure that it never happens again. That's a big part of how I became a political candidate. Someone pointed out a problem that made me very angry, and I would calm myself and think through solutions to the problem, rather than raging at the problem 
and then moving on. And of course, that political campaign led me to this podcast and then to the television show. And now here we are, empowering others to resolve their own traumas and to distance themselves from unfulfilling behaviors. So what about you? What emotion or behavior or pattern do you carry with you that perhaps fulfills you but keeps you from thriving? Maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's hoarding. Maybe it's fighting with people on social media. Whatever it is, examine it. Ask yourself if it helps you thrive. And if it doesn't, replace the behavior with something that will lead you to be an even more fulfilled, even more thriving person. That's all for this chapter of What Happened to You and this episode of Bottomless Coffee Podcast. I'm your host, Jerome Evans, at Jerome T. Evans on social media. You can find episodes of our TV show, Bottomless Coffee with Jerome, and more episodes of Bottomless Coffee Podcast at bottomlesscoffeeshow.com. Thank you for sticking with me through this episode. I really appreciate it, and I hope that you're able to take something out of it. Have a great week. I'll see you next time.